Years of Classical Music presents this special Keys to Music podcast with Graham Abbott on ABC Classic FM. Welcome to Keys to Music on ABC Classic FM. My name's Graham Abbott. Pyotr Ilyich Tchaikovsky is one of the major figures in the mainstream of Western music. Where would Western music and popular culture be without Swan Lake, The Nutcracker, Romeo and Juliet, The First Piano Concerto and the 1812 Overture? Of course, there's a lot more to Tchaikovsky than these famous war horses. How often do we hear the second piano concerto, the orchestral suites, Hamlet, the piano sonatas or the later quartets? In an earlier Keys to Music program, I cast my eye over the first three of Tchaikovsky's symphonies, works which are rarely heard in concerts and which are overshadowed by the later three symphonies. The last three symphonies, numbers 4, 5 and 6, are among the most popular and most frequently performed orchestral works in the canon. But as is often the case, popularity doesn't always equal understanding. In this program, I want to look at the first of this group of three much-loved symphonies, the Symphony No. 4 in F minor. One of the most important things in Tchaikovsky's fourth, a tune the composer himself said represented fate, is heard right at the start of the first movement. This introduction to the first movement brings to the fore the fate motif, which will recur later in this movement and also in the finale. But right from the start, I want to make it clear that I have no intention of trying to describe what this symphony is about. During the Soviet era, which commenced within 30 years of Tchaikovsky's death, there was an official line on Tchaikovsky which was largely accepted without question in the West. Much documentation was put out of reach of scholars, and Tchaikovsky was portrayed as a closeted, self-hating homosexual who tried to go straight by entering into a marriage with a suicidal nymphomaniac. This official line continues with Tchaikovsky attempting suicide soon after his marriage and pouring out his terror and turmoil in this symphony and the opera Yevgeny Onyegin. You'll still read these allegations in concert and recording notes today. With the fall of the USSR in 1991 and the opening up of Russian archives to musicologists, not to mention a more humane view of homosexuality, a more accurate picture of Tchaikovsky's emotional state at the time of the Fourth Symphony has emerged. Tchaikovsky's homosexuality was an open secret in a Russia where attitudes to sexuality were much more relaxed than they were in, say, England at the time. And he certainly wasn't the only known homosexual in the Russian artistic world of his day. The available evidence indicates that Tchaikovsky's marriage in July 1877 to Antonina Milyukova was not some pathetic attempt on his part to become heterosexual, but rather a means, not uncommon today let alone then, of maintaining a veneer of social conformity. He made it quite clear to Antonina that their relationship would be platonic something she accepted. And there is also evidence that Tchaikovsky married her in consideration of a sizable inheritance she would shortly receive. 
he wouldn't have been the first man to have done that either. On the other hand, there is no evidence that Tchaikovsky attempted suicide shortly after his marriage, something often stated as gospel truth. It is true that he realised within a few days that the marriage was a mistake, but his letters to his brothers make it clear that the mistake was on cultural grounds. They came from very different backgrounds, and not some sort of sexual horror. In the 16 years between the end of their brief marriage and Tchaikovsky's death, Antonina maintained a stable relationship with another man and bore three children. Her mental instability didn't develop until after the composer's death. So, what is the Fourth Symphony about, if not post-marital trauma? The fact is, it's a symphony, and symphonies usually aren't about anything. Musical commentary for the past century or more has so consistently linked Tchaikovsky's Fourth with his marriage that it's hard to realise that it actually has nothing at all to do with it. At the request of his patron, Nadezhda von Meck, Tchaikovsky provided a guide to the symphony's emotional journey. And it's true that it describes various emotional states, including despair. But the symphony's emotions are not written in some sort of secret code which displays Tchaikovsky's emotions, whatever they were. Rather, as he himself pointed out, the symphony follows a similar course to that of Beethoven's Fifth. Fate is presented, experienced and dealt with within the formal structure of a symphony, and not in the freer, more personal and less structured context of a symphonic poem, for example. Beethoven's fifth, like his ninth, moves from darkness to light, an emotional journey not uncommon in so many musical works, but this doesn't constitute anything like a story. Tchaikovsky's fourth simply does exactly the same. In the Fourth Symphony, Tchaikovsky grapples again with the symphonic form and, possibly for the first time, successfully creates a work which is both faithful to the symphonic tradition and individually personal. But it's personal because of its approach to form and not because of mental stress. It's perhaps vital to remember that the first three movements of the symphony were completed by early May 1877, two months before his marriage in July. The finale was finished around the start of June and the orchestration completed over the ensuing months. The exposition of the first movement has, as its first subject, a theme which is suggestive of a waltz, but a waltz which is infused with cross rhythms that make it always slightly unpredictable and on edge. For the second subject, Tchaikovsky slows the tempo a little, but unusually stays in the minor key, with the melody in the woodwinds complemented soon afterwards by a counter-melody which is hinted at by the violas, but stated more fully by the cellos. This melody has a strong Italian quality about it, reminiscent of Tchaikovsky's Capriccio Italien. Exposition is rounded off by a closing section which is marked by a swinging sort of melody heard at first in the violins, accompanied by the ticking of the timpani, and fragments of the first subject. This is crowned by a new melody based on a descending arpeggio, followed by an ascending scale, 
which I call the heroic motif. And here's the heroic motif. Tchaikovsky uses the fate motif as a sectional marker in this movement. We hear it here to mark the end of the exposition and the start of the development. The development section is almost entirely based on the first subject. We hear it in its original form, descending, and inverted in an ascending form. As is usual in Tchaikovsky, there is little actual development because the melodies are so well-formed and satisfying to start with. Tchaikovsky substitutes repetition and different instrumentation and key in place of real development, something which he does particularly successfully here. structural innovation Tchaikovsky gives us in this movement is a conflation of the end of the development and the start of the recapitulation. The climax of the development, which we're coming to now, is crowned by the structural marker of the fate motif, meaning a new section has started. But the music reaches a climax with the statement of the first subject. It sounds simultaneously like the end of the development and the start of the recap.
And here we have the second subject. We're well into the recap without realising it. The recap in this movement has its own closing section to mirror that at the end of the exposition, with the same melodic raw material as before. This builds to a gigantic climax, crowned by the fate motif. Here it marks the start of the coda, the overwhelmingly powerful rounding off section, which brings the first movement to a close. This is almost entirely based on ideas derived from the first subject. The first movement of Tchaikovsky's fourth symphony is one of his longest symphonic structures. 
It shows that while working within the formal confines of symphonic sonata form, Tchaikovsky was still able to make it personal by overlapping the end of the development and the start of the recap in a way which is not only musically intriguing but emotionally satisfying. The second movement also shows Tchaikovsky's understanding of the need for light and shade in works like symphonies. In the second movement, even though there is a pervading mood of melancholy, the overt tragedy and power of the first movement is avoided. The tempo indication is Andantino in modo di canzona. Canzona, or song, gives us an indication of the simpler, more personal nature of this music. In his program note for Nadezhda von Meck, which I'm certain Tchaikovsky never imagined would become public, he suggests regret and world-weariness as keys to understanding this movement. The movement is in ternary form, A-B-A, three sections where the first and last are based on one melody and the middle one is based on a different melody. Tchaikovsky's use of melody and his habit of repeating his melodies have led to his symphonic writing being criticised by those who believe symphonies should develop more and repeat less. Tchaikovsky's melodies in the symphonies, and the fourth is a perfect example, are very long when compared to those in symphonies by, say, Beethoven or Tchaikovsky's contemporary, Brahms. The problem, in inverted commas, Tchaikovsky is seen to have to deal with is the fact that the melodies, being fully formed at their first appearance, don't always allow for further development. And development is a cornerstone of the sonata symphony tradition. What is often overlooked is the fact that Tchaikovsky was no fool. He knew the classical tradition well. He adored Mozart and knew the symphonies of Beethoven. Most of all, he knew the music of Brahms, who was only seven years older than he, and he didn't like what he heard. Richard Taruskin puts it this way, It unsurprisingly turns out that Tchaikovsky chose his methods quite deliberately, with full knowledge of what he was rejecting. What he was rejecting, in a word, was Brahms, whose music, as Tchaikovsky put it to Madame von Meck, was made up of little fragments of something or other artfully glued together, with the result that he never expresses anything, or if he does, he fails to do it fully. Tchaikovsky was painfully aware of a deficiency, as he saw it, in Brahms, one that came about in direct consequence of what is now generally considered his most valuable contribution. For the Russian composer, the German's virtuosity in constructing large musical entities out of atomic particles represented no dialectical triumph, but merely an unresolved and therefore fatal contradiction. Aren't his pretensions to profundity, strength, and power detestable, Tchaikovsky wrote of Brahms to another correspondent, when the content he pours into those Beethovenian forms of his is so pitiful and insignificant? These comments strongly suggest that Tchaikovsky's deviations from the Beethovenian, or at least the Brahmsian, straight and narrow, were conditioned less by a lack of symphonic aptitude than by the wish to express something fully. A deceptively simple oboe melody starts the slow movement. The refrain, which functions like the chorus of a strophic song, is punctuated by a series of three identical chords which propel the music in different directions each time they're heard. This melody sounds like a traditional Russian song, but it is in fact of Tchaikovsky's own invention.
Tchaikovsky here, as usual, favours repetition over true development, but the repetitions of the melody are given different accompaniments each time. We now go into the contrasting B section with a faster tempo and a new melody. The melody seems to be entwined and tangled around itself, making it intriguing to see where it'll go. And now the B section unwinds and we return to the A melody again with new accompaniments.
In the third movement, Tchaikovsky shows yet again how a simple idea well executed can make for a totally thrilling musical experience. The tragedy and darkness of the first movement and the melancholy of the second give way to altogether happier sentiments in the third. The scherzo follows the usual ternary structure of such movements, but Tchaikovsky overlays this with a strict orchestral plan. The strings play the main scherzo section, and they do so entirely pizzicato. They don't use their bows at all in this movement. In fact, Tchaikovsky subtitles this movement as pizzicato ostinato, a continuous pizzicato. The central trio section is divided between the woodwinds, who play their own melody as a discrete unit, and the brass and timpani, who likewise play their own melody as a discrete unit in a different tempo, albeit with interjections from the winds. The families of the orchestra could not be more clearly delineated. and the strings return with the reprise of the scherzo.
The coda sees Tchaikovsky chop up the musical material and throw it from one section of the orchestra to another, with the excitement building, then ebbing away to a hushed close. The finale of Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony is the polar opposite of the first movement. The work opened in darkness and turbulence. Here we have a carnival of dazzling light and energy. Tchaikovsky described it to von Meck as seeking joy and pleasure in others if it can't be found in oneself. Structurally, the movement is organised very simply. It alternates two musical ideas, the opening loud music and a contrasting quieter melody. The contrasting quieter melody is an actual folk song tune, translated as In the Field Stood a Little Birch Tree. The song speaks of a tree that is not only solitary, but also female, something which has drawn obvious parallels in the minds of many with Tchaikovsky's wife. The song also speaks of marriage rituals. What are we to make of Tchaikovsky's description of the Fourth Symphony, which he provided for Nadezhda von Meck? For a start, it was not offered, but written at her request. It was also written for the woman who paid his bills, so as such it may not be entirely honest or accurate on an artistic level. It was also written for her eyes only and not intended for publication. And it was written at a time of emotional anguish for the composer in the aftermath of his marriage. As such, I think Tchaikovsky's so-called program for the Fourth Symphony should not be taken as the gospel it is sometimes made out to be. His negative description of the emotional turmoil of the music is interesting, but it doesn't have the ring of truth about it to me, and the circumstances of its creation make it, at the very least, suspect. The use of the song about the birch tree in the finale of the Fourth Symphony seems to speak clearly of his wife, but this assumes Tchaikovsky was pouring himself and his life into his music. If, as I said earlier, Tchaikovsky's separation from Antonina was simply over a social incompatibility, an embarrassing realisation of a rash and silly impulse, then there were no great traumas or horrors which needed exorcising, let alone subjects requiring expression in a symphony. Above all, it should be noted that the use of the folk melody in this finale is in the context of rejoicing and not of despair. The fate motif reappears in this movement, but it doesn't have the last word. The music of rejoicing does. The birch tree melody can be heard first in the woodwinds about 15 seconds after the movement starts.
The folk tune returns here to function as the primary melody of a new section. The semiquavers which accompany the folk melody take on a life of their own as the boisterous music from the start of the finale returns. way, Tchaikovsky repeats with different dress rather than develops. And so here, in a fourth segment, the birch tree song melody returns in different orchestral colours. Semiquavers return to permeate the whole texture, but this time Tchaikovsky is not preparing us for a return of the other music, but rather a return of the fate motif from the first movement. This injects a serious but familiar note into the proceedings and serves to unify the whole work in our minds with the simplest of means.
And with sure theatrical timing, and using both of the movement's melodies, Tchaikovsky sets up one of his greatest codas, with the symphony reaching a tumultuous and joyous conclusion. Tchaikovsky's Fourth Symphony was first performed in St. Petersburg in a concert given by the Russian Musical Society in February 1878. The conductor was Nikolai Rubinstein. It rapidly became one of the staples of the orchestral repertoire, and it's hard to imagine now that a week goes by without it being performed somewhere in the world. The recording used in this program was made in 2007. It comes from a set of the complete Tchaikovsky symphonies recorded in concerts given by the Melbourne Symphony Orchestra, conducted by Oleg Kayatani. Technical production for Keys to Music is by Michael Rogers, and my name's Graham Abbott. May your week be full of wonderful music. Bye for now.